you can't produce a high quality product and expect to get X number of dollars more per pig, right? It's just, it, it doesn't work that way. So we've got to get the value out by, by driving demand and making sure that our producers are, are competitive and profitable. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Laura Greiner, for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Bob Kemp, who is the Vice President of Research and Development and Genetic Programs at Genesis. How are you today, Bob? Very good. Thank you, Laura. And thank you for, uh, for having me on this uh, discussion. I'm looking forward to it. I think this will be a wonderful discussion today. Um, if you don't mind, Bob, let's first start with just a little bit of background for our audience in case they're not familiar with who you are. Sure. So I uh, graduated with my PhD way back in the, uh, the mid-80s, and I've held various positions, uh, faculty position, University of Wisconsin at Madison, and uh, then at uh, the Ontario government with the University of Guelph and the federal government, all in the livestock genetics area. And then uh, joined uh, Genesis, uh, basically when the company was formed, uh, and have been with them ever since running running their genetic programs and their R&D. So, yeah. Okay. And so could you maybe talk just a little bit about Genesis as a company, just to give people a little bit of background about the genetic types that you're working with to start with? Sure. So uh, we're, we're based in Canada and uh, our program is based on purebreds. So York, Yorkshire and Landrace purebreds that we then breed and produce F1s and the uh, and the Duroc as our uh, terminal sire. And to be honest, that's a bit of history that's really come from being Canadian to start with, because Canada as an industry has always been trade focused. We export a large percentage of our production and a lot of it has gone overseas, especially into the Asian markets. So the move many years ago towards the traditional three-breed uh, Duroc on York Landry slaughter pig uh, really became ingrained uh, into the Canadian industry. And the main focus was, was really on the export markets and the quality parameters that the uh, mostly Asian customers were uh, were asking about, especially on the loins at that point in time. So that was really the start. Uh, I guess the other thing I should say is that we are a, a purebred registered program. Uh, we, we believe in that, in the purebred. Uh, we do the registration, not only from the point of view of, of obviously keeping up our, 
our pedigrees and so on, but also from the point of view of our customers. Many of our customers all over the world, they want purebred registered pigs. And so that really gives us an advantage when we have a, a customer that's, that's focused that way. Uh, so we, uh, we really look at that as a, a strong aspect of our program. So, yeah, so that's kind of the, the background of the program. Uh, it's expanded uh, over the years, of course, and, and we now have nucleus production, not only in Western Canada, we have based in the US, um, yeah, in the UK, in France, uh, and then we have uh, what we call genetic service customers. So they'll basically be owning their own nucleus units. We'll put the pigs, we'll sell them the purebred pigs, and then we'll run the genetic program for them or help them to run the genetic program, but they implement it. Um, and so we have a number of those customers uh, in Russia, some other parts of the EU, uh, lots of them in China and, and Asia. And the focus there really is that we are able to provide them the technical and genetic resource that we use for our own nucleus herd. So they have the same program. They obviously are responsible for implementing it on the farm, but that program is run by a Genesis geneticist. There's Gen Genesis technical support people that go into those programs. And the other thing that we provide those people is that we bring all their data into our database because, of course, it's from our original parent stock. And so they are run from a genetic evaluation point of view right along with our animals every week. So they get a complete update utilizing all the other information from not only our Canadian Genesis-owned nucleus-type herds, but also from other nucleus herds around the world. So it becomes a, a very large database that people are able to utilize the information for their own program. So it's a very interesting way to look at it. Um, certainly, one of the things that you and I have visited with is especially around your program and, and what we're seeing happening in the U.S. as well as the shift towards using more of the Duroc base in, in a lot of our meat quality decisions. And maybe if you could elaborate a little bit more on what's driving that conversation around meat quality and, and why might we be seeing this transition today? Because again, we've, we've talked about meat quality for many, many years. This is not a new discussion. So um, maybe if you could elaborate a bit more on why we see this happening today, I think that would be a good place to start. Sure. So when, when we look at it, our, our thinking is that from a historical perspective, we know there are consumers out there. Uh, and in some cases, you know, we think about Japan, for instance, right, that are really demanding meat quality and and meat quality in a specific way, right? Like their definition of meat quality, while we may measure it similarly, what they're actually looking for might be quite different, you know, in the amount of marbling, et cetera, uh, the color aspect. But the, the important component that we've really found is that as people gain a little more disposable income, they're really looking for a meat-based protein that has more flavor, more taste, uh, just a little higher consumer satisfaction. And our belief is that, you know, pork is the number one meat consumed in the world, right? And we believe that we can produce a product that will compete with beef on the quality side, but at a cost of production that is somewhere between chicken and beef. And really, I mean, if you want a lean, a really lean product that can be produced very cheaply, 
uh, and ha- and can have a low price, you know, chicken is the uh, is an obvious choice, right? And that and that's great. There's lots of parts of the world that need that need and want that. But our belief is that pork really has a role to fill in that cost competitive, higher quality aspect of it. And so when we step back and look at, you know, not only the industry in, in the US and Canada and in, and in a lot of Europe as well, pork consumption has been pretty flat uh, for a number of years where we've seen consumption of other meats, you know, increase. Um, and if you start to talk about some different segments, you know, if we talk about, you know, the highly marbled beef product, there's certainly been increasing demand for that. I mean, you you only have to drive around the U.S. and see how many black cows are out on farms now to, to understand what's happening there, right? So why can't we do that in pork? And so our belief is that quality is not a specialty market. Yes, there are specialty markets that are out there that incorporate quality, but they usually also incorporate other things like organic production or humane treatment or you know gestation-free system or whatever. And that's great. But our belief is if we can improve the overall quality of the pork being offered to the average North American consumer, and because of that, they have a better eating experience and a consistent eating experience because when they go back, you know, they like the product, they go back and buy it, and they have the same experience again, that repurchase proposition is is really important. So we believe that you can drive some demand through having a better quality product, right? So if consumers are willing to pay for a better quality product and we can make a better quality product, then that's kind of the demand side of it. But the catch in our mind, which is where I think our thinking has differentiated a little bit from previous thinking about the high quality market is that we have to do that at a competitive cost of production, right? We, you can't produce a high quality product and expect to get X number of dollars more per pig, right? It's just, it, it doesn't work that way. So we've got to get the value out by, by driving demand and making sure that our producers are are competitive and profitable. So we've always talked about and always had the philosophy that we want to produce a higher quality product at a competitive cost of production. Right? We may not be that you know the Genesis pig may not be the cheapest cost of production, but we'll be very competitive. And we've done a number of other things like looking at nutritional requirements of our pigs, etc., to try and fine tune that that cost of production aspect. But that's getting a little off our topic today, but that's really the philosophy behind what we're trying to do. And the interesting part is, as we look at what's happening in other parts of the world, I mean, Russia is a perfect example. Um, I think you you did a podcast with uh, Simon Gray and uh, from our group who looks after Russia for us. And he talked a little bit, I think, in that podcast about you know, what is the highest price value of uh, the pork carcass in, in Russia? And what do Russian consumers pay for? And they really like the fat and the flavor, right? And so we're seeing customers of ours that have moved right through into a retail situation, selling it as a, as a higher quality pork, uh, even right through to the restaurant trade. So we believe that, that that that's really happening all over all over the world. It's you know it's happening at different rates, obviously, right? But uh, I you know I I believe that we have to provide a better overall quality product for the consumer if we're going to grow the grow the industry. 
brought up a couple of interesting points in that that uh, those few statements. But one that I heard you say a couple of times is talking about getting really good meat quality, but not sacrificing in terms of cost of production. Mm -hmm. And the way I was always taught, we pick one or the other, right? That's right. we know that from a genetic standpoint, growth traits are moderately heritable. Carcass traits are are um, on the heterosis side highly uh, highly involved. So how do we uh, marry the two together, if you will? Because obviously the producers do want to provide something to the consumer that the consumer wants and is willing to pay for, but as you know, especially right now with, with prices the way they are in terms of ingredient costs, we're not really wanting to give up feed efficiency to do that. So you know, what's going on in terms of how we're making those genetic selections? Right, so, so I'll, I'll address it in a couple of different ways. So if we look at the feed efficiency component, okay, uh, the old, you know, the traditional measure of feed efficiency, uh, the ratio, and, and how we've selected historically for feed efficiency, it's really, a lot of that was really driven by fat reduction, right? And so we reduced intake, we reduced the amount of fat because of the energy associated, the amount of feed associated with fat deposition. And so we made the pig leaner that way, right? We've advanced our thinking, obviously. And so our belief, because feed is a huge cost, right? And we talk about cost of production. So our focus is really to hold feed intake about where it is in our population, because we're, we're very comfortable where it is and then drive growth rate as, as much as we can. So in our selection index, we have both of those traits independently in our selection program. We don't select on the ratio of feed conversion, right? We, we select on those two traits and we have them weighted essentially to do exactly that. Because the other belief we have as a company is that yeah, if we sit down and do the economics and we look at feed from the point of view of feed cost, just with regards to growth rate and carcass composition, it, it's a huge factor. And so reducing feed intake to improve efficiency makes sense when you think about it that way. But then when you think about it from the point of view of, well, what else does feed intake and i really i like to talk about appetite so what other things does the appetite of the pig affect other than post weaning growth right and we believe as a company that that appetite aspect becomes important in a number of other aspects of production uh, even right through to sow feed intake, right? So lactation feed intake, right? If we take our maternal lines and you don't really have put a lot of value on sow feed intake while well, you're, you know, you're going to put all your emphasis on driving intake down to improve efficiency because of grow finish. But that's probably also driving down sow feed intake. And so then what impact does that have on the sow, right? And so in our mind, there's a lot more to appetite than just grow finish feed intake. So our, our philosophy in the company is that we're comfortable with where our intake is now. And so genetically, we want to hold it in a fairly narrow band. But then we want to drive growth rate, for instance, and improve efficiency that way. Right. So, that, so that's the growth feed efficiency side of it. Right. So then if we think about carcass composition, right? So, you know, we basically don't get paid for quality at this point, let's be honest, right? So we're talking about carcass composition. So that means we want to reduce back fat to an acceptable level, 
right? I think we've learned the lesson that if we go to almost zero back fat, there's other implications, but we want to reduce back fat to an acceptable level and we want to increase carcass uh, lean content, which we do generally through selection on things like loin eye area or loin depth or, or whatever, which is, which is good, okay? But when you drive back fat down, which is the main measure that we use for lean yield, we also drive down fat content in the, the fat amount in the other depots in the body, one of which is marbling. So as a consequence of pushing yield of the carcass, we've driven marbling down to a very, very low level, right? And so what we are doing and what our belief is, is that the correlation, right? The association between back fat and marbling is positive so that, you know, as you reduce back fat, you are gonna reduce marbling, but that correlation is not perfect. It's not one. So our program is set up that we spend a lot of time measuring estimates of intramuscular fat or marbling. And we do that in a couple of different ways. And we're incorporating that data into our genomic evaluation and our index such that we're trying to find those outliers that have lower levels of back fat, but then can still deposit significant amounts of marbling. And, and in the last two to three years, when we've put some new technology together, uh, changed our index a little bit, we're actually seeing that separation happening in our, in our uh, Duroc population, for instance, where we're actually pushing back fat down somewhat and we continue to improve marbling. So we're able to find those pigs and drive that genetic trend against what sort of the average is and what the general thinking that is out there, right? And, and that general thinking is true. If you don't measure it, both components on a lot of animals, you, you don't really get a feel for that, right? You're just kind of looking at, okay, as the pig gets more back fat, it gets more marbling. So and our lean yield goes down. So if you want more marbling, you're gonna have more back fat, which means higher feed cost, which means lower yield. So it's costing me more to produce. And our, our argument is that no, we can, we can find those animals in the population and we can select for those animals that go against the norm. Because, and it's all about those correlations and how accurately we can predict the genetic value of an individual for those traits. And that's really where technology has really come in to help us in the last number of years, I guess I'll put it that way. So. What types of new technology uh, are you using or consider using? Sure, so we have uh, since uh, 1998, we have conducted a what we call our carcass and meat quality program. So from our purebred populations, we every week we slaughter 20 to 25 animals and do detailed carcass and meat quality measurement in the plant. So that way we get a large number of animals sampled. Uh, we have our whole population uh, recorded, if we want to think about it that way, for carcass and meat quality. And we are able to utilize then that data in our evaluation. So that's kind of the carcass side of it. And then on the live animal side of it, of course, you know, we've been doing the standard ultrasound on carcass and meat quality or on back fat and loin depth on the carcass composition side. But we've also implemented ultrasonic measurement of intramuscular fat on the candidates, right? So on the live animal then, we've got a live back fat, we've got a live loin depth, we've got a live measurement of intramuscular fat. And then on those animals, litter mates and relatives, we've got carcass data on all of those traits as well, actual carcass data, right? So those are 
technologies that we've been obviously using for a while. Uh, some new technologies, which really are kind of the next step that we want to move towards, uh, really are, are things like the DEXA machine or uh, some other people will use one called the CT machine. Uh, the one where the technology we're focusing on is, is DEXA. And what DEXA does is it allows us to take a, a half a carcass, for instance, and very quickly do a, an, an X-ray scan of this and predict the amount of fat, lean, and bone. And so the nice thing about it is that we can also take that side and we can split it into the primals. And so we can just separate those on the same piece of equipment, do the measurement, and we can get that in each primal. All right. So that's an area that we've been working on building uh, our database and our uh, technology adoption on the DEXA side of things. And that's really what we see as kind of the next focus on the carcass composition side, right? Because we all know that prediction of lean meat yield in the carcass based on back fat and loin eye area uh, is okay, but it's, it's not perfect, right? And so how do we get a better prediction of the true lean meat content in that carcass? So this is one of the technologies that we're looking at. Uh, the other one that we that we're really working on uh, figuring out how to apply on a fairly routine basis in the slaughter plant is uh, is NIR, right? And so it's been used, you know, in many many different industries already. It's a well proven technology. Uh, we have a, a research partner at. Uh, in agriculture and agri-food Canada that have been doing a lot of work in this whole area. And there's some really promising opportunity to really start and look at uh, especially fat quality uh, as well as the amount of, of fat and predicting that using this NIR technology. And it's, it's relatively cheap. Prediction equations are very high. It's portable. Uh, so it, it looks like a really interesting technology from an application point of view. Uh, the other things that we are thinking about with regards to the NIR technology is potential opportunity then to look at tenderness. And that's really, a, I'll call that more a research project as opposed to a development project. But are there some opportunities to use that technology? Because you know, the way it's been used in other industries, right? You know, there seems to be some thought that, okay, trying to look at it to understand the muscle structure and the potential relationship to tenderness. Yeah, maybe there's something there, right? So, you know, that's that's certainly an opportunity that, that we've been looking at as well. And of course, you know, the standard technology of, of pH measurement and, uh, and the Minolta measurements of color. Uh, so we utilize both of those technologies every week in the plant uh, and, and have done that for, for many, many years. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the technologies that we're using. And I talk about it from the point of view of, in some cases, measuring traits that we haven't been able to measure before, for instance, fat quality, right? So, you know, if we think about fat hardness, for instance, we've traditionally looked at the iodine value as kind of one of those measurements, not really a measure that is easy to get, or from an economical point of view is easy, is easy to justify on a large number of animals, right? Well, NIR can do a good pr prediction of iodine value, as an example, right? So that's kind of a new trait that we could think about. Uh, but then if we think about just improving the accuracy of the traits that we're currently measuring, we're carcass composition, right? Moving from the ruler 
and measurement of fat depth and loin depth on the carcass, right? Or loin eye area using the, the little plastic grid, right? Well, can we use the DEXA to have a much more accurate measurement? So that's an important component. But to us, one of the most important tools and technologies that we've implemented uh, a few years ago now is really this whole aspect of genomics and, and genotype. And what that has really allowed us to do is to be able to take these animals, like the carcass animals, and do a very detailed measurement on a small number of animals, let's say 1,000 to 2,000 a year. And we, as part of that, we collect the genotype on them. So that allows us to really understand in much more detail the specific relationships that allow us to determine what's happening with regards to the DNA, and I'll use that term loosely, but the DNA and the traits of interest, right? So that allows us to understand that. Well, then what we can do is all of our selection candidates, so our live animals that we're measuring growth rate and ultrasonic measurements on, we also get a genotype from them. So then we can understand that, okay, genotypes from the detailed carcass and meat quality stuff tell us these are the relationships with the markers and the DNA. And so essentially that gets applied to the live animals and it significantly increases the accuracy of our estimate of genetic merit or of breeding value. And this is, in our opinion, has really been a game changer because it really, by increasing that accuracy, it really allows us, if I go back to thinking about accurately finding those individuals that can reduce back, have the genetic ability to reduce back fat, but have more marbling, that becomes a much easier thing to do. And so it's really the, the marrying of different technologies that really has allowed us to move to move forward in this area. How much time do you think that is reducing our ability to pass the genotype from the nucleus down to a commercial level where we're seeing obviously the phenotypical change that we're desiring? We used to say three years, is that still where we're at or is the genetic mapping helping move that faster? So I, I... I think it's it's helping. It's helping from the point of view of, in my mind, we're able to identify those individuals that are more at the level that we want, as opposed to so they you know they have the genomic estimated breeding values that are better, right? So by being able to select those animals that are better than what we could select before, then yes, we're, we're able to move that, to move that faster. Um, but one of the things, and it's a little bit off topic, but I think it's related here, is the other thing that genomics is allowing us to do is really moving towards being able to incorporate commercial animal data into our genomic or nucleus evaluation. Because, you know, as you and most people listening to this understand, we do all this measurement on nucleus animals, right? And we believe that that improvement gets passed on to the commercial industry, right? And, and it does, right? But the question is, at what level does that happen? And what can we do to try and make that happen at, at a higher rate? So it kind of comes back to the question you asked. So uh, one of the projects that we've been working on, uh, both in carcass and meat quality and growth and feed intake and, and the whole sow productivity side is going out and getting a number of commercial animals genotyping those animals, measuring those traits of, of importance on those animals, 
and then bringing that data in together with our purebred data. And because we have genotypes, we can link those commercial animals back to our purebred animals. And we, through the statistical models, we can actually then say, if we wanna select a Duroc for increased growth rate, better marbling and reduced back fat, instead of measuring that or selecting them based on the traits measured on the Duroc and the nucleus, we can actually do that for the traits measured on the commercial animal at the commercial setting, right? And bring that information back. So I think about it as we would, we really would have another whole set of traits on those purebred Durocs, right? We have the traits based on their purebred data, and then we have the traits based on their commercial progeny and that are expressed at the commercial level. So then if you think about it, we can select purebred animals at the nucleus, but based on the trait expressed at the commercial level. And so that's an area that again is becoming uh, to the point where we're going to be able to implement that technology fairly soon on a, on a fairly routine basis. And is really, in my mind, is really gonna help us in moving that genetic improvement to the, to the commercial level. Because we know that that relationship's not 100% between growth rate in the, growth rate of the nucleus and growth rate, you know, in, uh, in a, in a, nu in a uh, nursery to finish barn in the middle of Iowa, right? Like those are not exactly the same traits. Are they related? Absolutely, but they're not exactly the same, right? So if we can actually put our selection focus on the trade at the commercial level, that's gonna allow us to really move that genetics at the appropriate trait at a much faster level to the, to the commercial industry. So, and that, that can happen at really any any level of trait. So it has, you know, great application at the carcass and meat quality side as well. That's really interesting way of looking at, at that rather than top down working bottom up. And we've talked about it for many years, but you're right, having the ability to use the gene mapping and, and genetic profiling certainly is going to help that concept move a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, for the sure. last the last thing I want to bring up here is, as we wrap up our time, is um, you had talked earlier about my previous podcast where we were talking about the difference between Russia and, and U.S. in terms of wants and needs. And, and we've always talked about the difference between North America, pork production, and, and the rest of the world. What do you see happening in the next 10 to 15 years in terms of pork production globally? Are we going to merge those concepts together or do you think we're going to continue to to look different um i i think it's i think it'll be a combination um i think where there are um opportunities for different markets uh i think one will have to evaluate you know how different those markets are and and how large they are right our our belief is that on the meat quality side and and our approach uh, especially with our duroc um, in all of the markets that we really have looked at so far we believe that with a large enough population and i'll i'll call it a middle of the road selection Right, so that we're putting emphasis on marbling and meat quality, color, pH, whatever. We're putting emphasis on lean yield. We're putting emphasis on growth efficiency. So we can create this larger population of which there is obviously diversity, right? So then we can go into that population using our genomic EBVs for marbling and color, et cetera. And if there's a specific market that is looking for 
darker meat with higher meat quality and so on, then we can go in and we can source those animals from within that population to meet that market demand. And, and we believe that's there, right? Um, and a, you know, a way to think about it again is if we go back to marbling and you know, traditionally North America, we, we pull out the loin primal and that's where we do all our quality measurements. Uh, that's what we use to judge quality of the carcass. And you know, for many, many, many years, that was obvious because loin was the loin primal was the highest value part of the carcass. Well, we're seeing that get turned around even in in North America, right? But if we look at other parts of the world, you know, if we think about Spain, for instance, well, the loin doesn't have the same value, right? So a ham, right? So what's the quality of the ham and what's driving the quality of the ham? And what's the genetics of marbling and quality in that ham? And there's there's been research to show that, you know, just like back fat and marbling are related, uh, you know, marbling in the loin and marbling in the ham are related, but that relationship is not one, right? So another one of the areas that we're looking at is that, okay, can we do and develop appropriate measures of quality in the ham or the belly or you know somewhere else and maybe even specific cuts within those primals that will allow us to look at being able to get accurate genetic evaluations for those traits and thus utilize that to select animals for that specific market you know so just like you think about it's the same idea as the as the commercial industry, right? So instead of having growth rate nucleus commercial, now we're thinking about quality in the loin versus quality in the ham, right? And so if we want if our customers in Spain and they want higher quality in the ham, then we can go into our population and select those animals that have higher quality in the ham, right? And so that that's been our philosophy. Um, and by keeping that, all of those components into our selection program, we, we believe that, that we're able to do that, right? And, you know, the old adage of a Duroc is a Duroc, right, from 20 years ago is, it's just not true anymore, right? I mean, if you go out and actually look at different Durocs and the selection programs that they've been under, there is a lot of difference out there. And, and I think people really need to know that. And that's one of the things that concerns me a little bit with our industry. You know, my, my thinking is that the industry's thinking, well, we'll just switch everything to a Duroc and our quality problems will be solved. Yeah, I don't think so, right? Um, I, you know, you can see lots of, Duroc sired pigs that will compete with the leanest terminal sire pigs out there, right? And so, yeah, it's still a Duroc, but what are the attributes of that Duroc? So, you know, we've got to, we have to keep that a little bit in mind too, but, you know, just coming back to kind of the North American industry. Uh, so I think, you know, that's one caution that I think we really have to think about. Uh, you know, as an industry. And, and we know there's people doing that, right? If you think about some of the programs out there, you know, one group that we work with uh, and, and other genetics companies do as well, but they've actually set up, uh, uh, I'll, I'll call it a sire testing program focused on meat quality because that's a huge component of their program. And, you know, they, they test a number of different sire lines. And, and a number of different Durocs, and only certain Durocs will qualify, right? So yeah, there's there's people thinking that way and, and moving that way. So, you know, it, it really, it just comes back to, in my mind is that we can't, we have to measure that improvement, right? We really have to, to look at that and see that we're actually making improvement in 
the average marbling, the average color, the average pH in the product that we're that we're producing. We can't just assume that we're going to improve it by you know using a Duroc, for instance, because I I'm just concerned that that we we won't get the results that some people are expecting, and I and I think that'll just be because we really haven't sat back and thought about that, right? Um, so anyway, a little little bit of my my thoughts on my concerns with what I see out there a little bit. No, I think that's a good cautionary tale for us as we move forward to again remember that that it's really while we know certain breeds um, have certain attributes that we want to focus on, not all animals within that breed are going to carry those traits, just like most anything else that we talk about. And so that's a very good point as we wrap up our discussion today on meat quality. It is time to our famous three. Vivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Bob, one of the things that we like to do with our guest speakers is we like to ask you a couple of questions at the end of our podcast. Um, the first question is, is, do you have a swine resource book that you might recommend to the audience or just a swine resource in general? You know, on, on the genetic side, one of the aspects that I think is, is pretty good, uh, I mean, obviously at university course and so on there's lots of them but just in general you know if you go to uh i think it's pork pork.org and look at a lot of the uh the fact sheets uh there's a number of those in there focused on as general aspects of breeding and i think as a you know as a resource for people trying to you know get a bit of a handle on the whole genetic side and you know why we why we have to measure so many animals and you know what's heritability and how you know i think those fact sheets do a pretty good job of that uh, and then you know pretty much after that i wouldn't say i have a favorite book i th i would say talk to your talk to your extension specialist or your local land grant university the animal science department and and find out what they're using for a textbook or maybe or maybe talk to your to your kids or at, that are at university, right? And find out find out what they're reading, right? Because those are generally good books. There's different things, and and lots of times faculty members have produced some some good resources just internally, right? So that's where I tend to go is kind of you know what the faculty members are utilizing in their courses. Uh, so I so I don't really have one, but maybe some different potential sources you could go to for information. How about uh, something that's not pig related? Are there any books that you might recommend to our audience, whether they're fictional, non-fictional, professional development type resources? Um, you know, I'm not a, uh, I, I read a lot on the science side and so on. So a lot of, uh, you know Netflix and Apple TV and some of some of those kinds of things. So there's a there are a, a number of different documentaries that I think are are really of interest to people or could be of interest to people. Um, and and a number of those really focus on some of the le the leadership skills, right? And whether they go back to uh, you know all, all the way back to some documentaries on on you know some of the the leaders within uh, the army and, and Navy and so on, but, but also in business. So I, I don't have one particular one that I would say everybody should go read, but, uh, you know, I think there's, I, I think there's certainly a few of those. Um, and the ones that I look for, uh, are really ones that sort of try and take a step back and think about things totally differently. Right. And how can we, you know, 
how can we restructure, right? What, you know, it's okay to say we want to change things, but, you know, one of the things that, that I think about and I have, you know, I've read in one of these books, I can't remember which one it was, but, you know, it's okay to say you want to change, but, you know, you, you need to understand what you want to change, how you want to change it, and more importantly, what you want to change to. Right. And, and so I think we really need to understand those components. So those are the kind of books and so on that I that I read on the non-science side. The last question we like to ask our speaker is, is really around if you could think of somebody that you define as successful in our field. What key trait or characteristic do you think they have that's helped them become successful? Uh, to Two traits that I think are really important. Um, one is that they they think about things differently. Okay, uh, and that's not to say how we're doing things now is not good, but I think that ability to step back and and just think about how we're doing things and is there a you know, and not just say, yeah, I think that's pretty good. But, you know, is there a different way to do it? So I, I think that ability to step back and think about doing things differently is is important. And the other piece that I think is important is just that that passion, right? Like you just you don't give up. Right. And and I and I think if we think about the industry, I think it was really built by a lot of very passionate people that were just not going to give up, right? And, and I think the third thing I would say is don't be afraid to fail, right? Try things. Um, and if it doesn't work, make the change, correct your course, and carry on, right? Uh, in my mind, in most cases, it's a lot better to try something and learn from that, whether it's positive or negative, take the corrective action and, and move on than to sit there and try and think about all the potential things that could go right or could go wrong and end up not doing anything at all, right? So you have to be able to, to do things and don't be afraid to fail. So, so those are three things that I think about anyway. Like those are all very good characteristics for someone to have to be successful. Well, again, okay. uh, we want to thank you for your time today. We greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and learn a little bit more about carcass quality and meat composition and where we're headed as an industry. And for our audience, again, I just want to remind you that this is Dr. Bob Kemp, who is Vice President of Research and Development and Genetic Programs at Genesis. Thank you for your time today, Bob. Thank you, Laura, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Have a great day. You too. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.